afternoon and welcome to the 113th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will talk about special education in COVID-19 with Dr. Simon Tan and journalist Joy Diaz. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 26th, there are 24,302,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 23,736,101 reported yesterday. Of those, 5,807,480 are in the United States. That's up from 5,764,304 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 179,235 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the U.S. That's up from 178,065 reported yesterday. Another day, today, 1,000 lives lost. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Scott Crane, longtime special education and Special Olympics mentor, dies of COVID-19 complications. This appeared in the Gainesville Times, July 31st, written by Nathan Berg. The Hall County School District and special education community is mourning the loss of a longtime role model for countless Special Olympic athletes and students in Hall County after he died of complications of COVID-19. Scott Crane, who served as a special education mentor in the school district and prompted hundreds of local children to get involved in Special Olympics, died Wednesday, July 29th at Northeast Georgia Medical Center in Gainesville. He was 59. We are deeply saddened by the passing of our friend and colleague, Scott Crane, all schools superintendent Will Schofield said in a statement. Scott represented everything good in public education and in humanity. His kindness, generosity, optimism, and gentle spirit moved others to be better, to give a little bit more of themselves to others and to see the unique potential endowed in every individual. Our hearts go out to Scott's family and friends. He will be sorely missed, but his legacy lives on through the countless lives he influenced. Crane, along with his wife, Stacy, got involved in special education following the birth of their son, Will, a former special education student in the Hall County School District, as well as a medalist in the 2015 Special Olympic World Games. Stacy Crane told the Times her husband's outgoing and patient nature made him the perfect person to work with special education students. He didn't think they were different. She said he loved them no matter what. He was just a joy to be around. She recalled that her husband loved his job with the school district at one point, recently telling her, Stacy, I'm going to work until I'm 80. He was just passionate about what he did, she said. It was just that love for others. According to Debbie King, a longtime friend of the Crane family and healthcare science teacher at West Hall High School, 
Scott Crane focused on getting as many special education students as possible involved in Special Olympics, even helping to establish a Special Olympics kayak team, King said. Whenever an athlete was unable to make it to an event, she said he was always willing to pick them up, no matter how out of the way the trip might be for him. He just opened doors for these kids that I don't know anybody would have thought to open for them, she said. King added that Scott Crane was the type of person who it's going to take three people to fill the shoes of when it comes to his role with HSCD. Hall County Special Olympics Chair Christopher Badura expressed a similar sentiment in Scott Crane's time working with Special Olympics in Hall. The organization tripled its number of registered athletes, according to Badura. Badura said he will be remembered for the positive impact he made on the community through his roles with HCSD and Hall County Special Olympics as well as his ministry involvement with Woodlawn Baptist Church, Hall Baptist Church, West Hall Baptist Church, Pinecrest Baptist Church, and Pleasant Hill Baptist Church, where he served as a music minister. But according to Badura, Scott Crane was never focused on building a legacy. All the service he did for his community came simply from the care he had for those in his life. Badura said his fondest memories of Scott Crane were the Sundays following massive Special Olympics events that would sometimes involve coordinating over 100 athletes getting them to the right events at the right times and making sure everyone made it onto buses and got home safely. Though the trips were exhausting, Badura said Scott Crane was always smiling and willing to do whatever it might take to make the trips as fun as possible for participating athletes. He touched so many kids' lives, which touched parents' lives, Badura said, and that's something that we'll never be able to replace. I'm going to turn to our discussion for today, and I'm really pleased to introduce my two guests. Texas Standard reporter Joy Diaz has amassed a lengthy and highly recognized body of work in public media reporting. Prior to joining Texas Standard, Joy was a reporter with Austin NPR station KUT on and off since 2005. There, she covered city news and politics, education, healthcare, and immigration. Originally from Mexico, Joy moved to the United States in 1998 when her husband Luis was transferred from his job in Mexico City to Virginia. And while there, Joy worked for Roanoke NPR station WVTF. Joy speaks English and Spanish. She graduated from Universidad de Cuatatlán, Iscali, in Mexico City with a degree in journalism. In 2008, she had a break to devote herself. She took a break to devote herself to her two young children before returning to the KUT studios. She loves reading, painting, and spending time engaging with the community. Great to have Joy on the program. And the second guest today is Simon Tan. Dr. Simon Tan is a clinical and neuro clinical neuropsychologist and clinical associate professor of neurology at Stanford Medical Center. He specializes in the evaluation and diagnosis of geriatric populations with dementia-associated disorders such as Alzheimer's disease and stroke and movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease and ALS. He sees patients with psychiatric disturbances such as depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and somatization disorders. Outside of Stanford, he does teaching and supervision at a number of local graduate schools with programs in clinical psychology and clinical neuropsychology. In his private practice, he sees adolescents and adults with neurodevelopmental disorders, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, learning disorder, and autism spectrum disorder. Simon and Joy, thank you for making time to join me today on COVID Calls. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
So I'd like to remind folks you can get your questions in to COVID calls. Just put them into the YouTube live chat or you can put them up on Twitter. Just tag at US of Disaster and we'll get to those questions through the conversation. I'd like to start the way I have been, which is just to ask you each where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is there right now. Joy, can I start with you, please? Absolutely. I am in Austin, Texas. And if you guys have heard anything about Texas in the news lately, when it relates to COVID-19, the news are not is not good. Um, the state was among the last ones to implement masks and um, it reopened very quickly. And so we have seen a lot of deaths, sadly, um, most of them people of color, um, most, most of them um, people in the Hispanic community. A doctor I interviewed recently said, um, we are witnessing the eradication of the Hispanic community. So those are really strong words. That is what is happening here. Mm, that is very strong. And then and you have a hurricane winding its way towards East Texas right now, which undoubtedly will have um, evacuation impacts on the rest of Texas, including Central Texas as well, right, Joy? We reported today that there are no more uh, hotel rooms in Austin with people who are who are evacuating. And this is a very, very familiar scenario because just three years ago we had Hurricane Harvey and um, it's Texas is being hit left and right. Disaster on disaster. Simon, I'm going to turn to you and ask the same question where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there now. I'm calling in from the San Francisco Bay Area. So I, uh, I live in a county called San Mateo County, and it, um, you know, San Francisco has been under a COVID-19 watch, and and there's a, a list of counties that uh, can go on the list if if the number of cases sort of exceed a certain uh, proportion, and so my county was the last county to go on the list. Uh, so up until late July, we were off the list, but then. Uh, you know, a little bit less than a month ago, um, we were just getting too many cases. And so now we're on Gavin Newsom's list of uh, counties to watch. And so um, it's a disappointment to hear. And and then on top of that, we have all these um, wildfires in California. And in the past, it used to be in Southern California. But I, I think more recently, these past several years, it's gone to Northern California. And so compounding the whole pandemic is just when you walk out of uh, where I am, uh, you can just smell um, the fire and brimstone in the air, which is just another you know, concern in terms of health issues right now. It's uh, really, I was going to say unbelievable, and yet everything that we're talking about right now in terms of the hurricanes and the fires are totally predictable and should be expected. But compounding them with this pandemic is raising all sorts of issues that we have only ever been in the most far-fetched sort of emergency management plans. And now they're everyone's reality. Simon, have you all been under any threat of uh, evacuation? Uh, we we did get uh, some notice from uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, our, our, our uh, main source of electricity here. Uh, and, and they were threatening to 
um, turn off the electricity. Uh, where I live, they never did, but uh, in other parts of our county, they did for, I don't know, probably 12 to 24 hour time periods. Um, we never got uh, the threat of evacuation, but I think some neighboring counties did have to do that. So we're gonna talk about that. We've got a, a series of episodes we've been doing about education um, and really glad you both could make time for this discussion about special education and the many different facets that are in, in, involved in that. Joy, um, I'm gonna ask you the first question. I know you have to, to move on to something here in a little bit, but I wanna get your perspective in on this. Um, you produced a story about special education teachers in Texas um, and I thought it was really, it was a great story. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the story and um, give us some of the context about what it's been like in public schools in Texas in terms of providing special services in the midst of school closures and uncertainties that you described earlier. Yes, um, Scott and Simon, my, I am not only a mom, but I'm also a former teacher. And so, you know, education is is one of those things that are really uh, that are really close to my heart. But also, my son. Right before the pandemic started, my son got approved to receive special education services because he has autism, and so we lived it firsthand that the services are so minimal. Um, during the pandemic, he received. 15 minutes of screen time with his special education teacher a week. Now, one of the things that we need to talk about is that Texas has not been the model for special education in a long time. In 2016, there was a big um, investigation by the Houston Chronicle, a fantastic investigation that actually received a, a Pulitzer Prize um, because Texas was trying to show the country that we were doing such a great job with special education that we only had 8.5% uh, of our students in special ed, meaning we didn't have a lot of cases when in fact the investigation showed that that was an artificial cap that the education agency set. Um, so whereas other states have upwards of 13% of students in special education, Texas was, you know, showing the world that we only had 8.5%, an artificial number. The other thing is that when I interviewed teachers and parents, what they were telling me was educating a child with special needs during the pandemic has been one of the hardest things we've had to do for several reasons. In Texas, one in every three households, 30% of households do not have access to fast internet. Some do not have access to internet, period. Now, when I talk to people about this, I see faces that don't believe me, right? And I'm married to a man who works in technology. So even my husband says to me, that is not possible. And I'm like, I am telling you numbers. 
what do you mean this is not possible and he says no it is not possible people have access to internet well yes you have access to internet on your phone but are you going to put your phone in front of your child who is visually impaired and say here is your zoom class no you're not going to do that um also we have a lot of rural communities in Texas. And one of the teachers in a rural community, he was telling me, we don't have internet access, period. We were finally able to get a hotspot in our house, but we pay for the internet by the minute. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, the first month of the pandemic, because I was teaching online and my children were learning online, I paid $1,200 in internet. Mm. I mean, I don't know whether you are in New York City or in California, that is a steep price to pay for internet. So there's a lot of things going on in Texas and maybe I will let you ask any more questions that you may have. Sure, let me um, just bring Simon in on the discussion. Looks like we're gonna go to a different there, Simon, is that uh, is that connection working for you? Looks like we may have frozen. Oh, let's see if this. Oh, okay. Well, we. I think he will rejoin us here in a moment. So, um, Joy, I'll come back to you. I think you've muted your your mic. Um, yes. Just, just want to ask you. So, thank you first of all for um, sharing about your own family situation. Yes. Um, and that you've been, so now you've experienced this as an educator on that side, now as a reporter and also as a parent. So you're really seeing the multiple Correct. different complicated sides of this. Um, I was impressed in the story that you produced, um, the many different sort of creative ways that teachers were coping. Um, you know, you, you talked about some of the challenges, internet access being one of them, getting information is another uncertainty of whether or not the schools would close, would they reopen? Um, many different things of trying to um, oversee at home um, the delivery of special services, its own set of challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered when you interviewed teachers? Yes, right now, the most recent interview that I did is with a school district that opened its stores for everybody. And, you know, during the time of COVID, we're thinking, wait a minute, why are you opening? And they said, for several reasons. One is because our students don't have internet access. And two, because our teachers are elderly. And so for them creating plans, not forget about special education, just for general ed, creating plans that translate to the web for children who don't have internet, it's not realistic. Why are we forcing the teachers to do something that the kids don't have access to? So there are so many layers to this, but when it comes to special education, a lot of the teachers are saying, you know what? We are masking ourselves, we are wearing gloves and we're meeting kids at the mall because the mall has internet access, you know? Or we are um, visiting the kids in person, because again, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but the state of Texas has one of the largest uh, schools for visually impaired uh, children in the country, one of the largest for uh, hard of hearing and deaf students in the nation. And so we get kids from all over the country 
And when you have so many in this population, how do you teach to them when you have to be six feet apart, right? Or how do you teach to them when you have a connection and they don't have internet? So there are a lot of layers to it and teachers are very frustrated. Um, I don't know if you know a teacher who doesn't love their profession. Most of the teachers, 99% of the teachers I know do it because they love it, because they want to change the world. They still use those words. We want to change the world. And when you are, when you have people with such passion, but without tools, there's a lot of hurt in the teaching community right now. I don't hear you, Scott, you're muted. My spouse is an occupational therapist and what you've just described is very much uh, hits home too. Yeah. People go into this work because they have a calling and a mission. Um, and so this frustration is felt on so many different sides. Can you give us a little of the context in Texas again, Joy, in terms of what the trajectory has been for the state. Uh, that was fascinating. You talked about that the state said, oh, we found out we didn't need students who need services. And now suddenly they do. Has that been as a result of activism on the part of disability community? Has this been a few legislators who've pushed this? How do you account for this change in the way Texas is now? It sounds what you've described moving in a much better direction to provide services. Well, that investigation in 2016 was an embarrassment. You know, Texas is a state with a lot of pride. And when that story in 2016 and that investigation in 2016 hit, um, I mean, the, the nation could not be silent and could not be, you know, pretending that it didn't exist. So, you know, Education uh, Secretary DeVos uh, intervene. And so there's been a lot of movement nationally, sort of shaming Texas. Um, and so that <laughs> that can <laughs> activate a lot of things. Um, so, you know, and, and it's been rapid because in 2018 is when whenever, you know, things started to change. But then you're hit with a pandemic, then you're hit with hurricanes. Right now, I was thinking that a story, an interesting story and how things change. When I covered Hurricane Katrina, you know, the story was, oh, all these children uh, need to be accommodated in schools because, you know, they are leaving Louisiana and moving to Texas and it was rapid change, but it was a physical accommodation. Right now, children are evacuating too and school districts just started teaching um, you know, two weeks ago, uh, in some cases, and you think about, you think about, okay, we don't need to accommodate him physically in a school campus. So is a silver lining that they can join virtually, you know, that they do not have to disrupt their education. So I don't know, it's a, it's a crazy time that we're living. And Texas has had to, you know, catch up, um, especially when it comes to special education students has to, has had to catch up um, to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. I think we've, we've got Dr. Tan. Sorry about that. Um, I think the internet is actually not so stable. I'm not sure if it's because of the fires or because of whatever's going on outside. 
Yeah. But uh, it, was, it just kind of, I was afraid you had gotten an evacuation notice, and and that was you had just told us that PG and E was going to cut your power, and then we lost right. you. So we're glad you're I back. I think there will be some, so I wouldn't be uh, surprised if there were any sort of sudden. Uh, it's fine. You know, withdrawal we'll with from, from whatever it was. I'm sorry about that. No, but, don't um, be sorry. We're honored to have you, and we'll work with 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 this as we go. Um, I just you. wanted to get your perspective, particularly after Joy had had shared her own family um, story, Simon, to get the same um, from you. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how these issues are, are affecting your family in terms of special special education needs at this time with COVID? Sure. Well, well, I have a six and a half year old daughter. Her name's Olivia. She's a special needs child. And, and we knew she was diagnosed with um, medical issues right away after birth uh, because she had a cleft palate and it seemed that every day when we went back to the hospital, the doctor would tell us something else that was wrong with her. So I think it's um, a parent's nightmare to go back to the hospital and realize that um, each day is something surprising and it's not something good that's surprising. Um, she was diagnosed with a genetic syndrome called CHARGE, and it's an acronym that stands for all of the multiple medical issues that somebody can have. So she has a heart defect. She is deaf and blind, but not completely deaf and blind. She can see in one eye, but is completely blind in the other. And then she's completely deaf, even though she wears a cochlear implant. And then she also has other physical issues such that it made her later in terms of walking, and meeting developmental milestones. So, um, so she underwent uh, special education and it's been you know, pretty much a disaster since I would say it started. Um, I think like many parents that I've read, uh, when the pandemic came during March, a lot of parents sort of understood this may have been a temporary situation and that uh, you know, the remote learning would be something that would get resolved by fall. But then when August came and we got the notice that, oh, you know, remote Let's see if we give him a second to unfreeze, maybe we will bring him back here. I know it's challenging. And when we brought him back on, he was moved traveling through his house with his computer. Oh, let's see if we can bring it back. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You were just telling us about this difficult moment in which there was yeah. like a temporary remote right. learning proposition. And I think everybody in America experienced that for a short period of time. But I, I, think, well, I think when we found out that this was going to be a permanent thing, yeah. and, and I think like other parents, we're thinking, uh, and I'm more on the pessimistic side, that maybe it's going to be, if not a year, maybe two or three years if, if this continues. And I think that's when the parents erupted and said, this cannot go on for you know the better part of a year or longer. And, and so the remote learning just doesn't seem to work for my child. I mean, she is, so she's deaf and blind. Those two things immediately have an impact on her. Um, she may not be able to see the screen clearly, 
Um, and when she was at school, somebody would sign to her. She would have a one-on-one -on -one aide who would sit next to her and sign. So now we lost the aide because of you know, physical distancing. And so there's nobody signing to her. So she was sitting in front of the screen, everybody speaking and verbally responding. She's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. And, and basically it's a waste of her time and a waste of mine. Um, as a parent, because there is not a uh, aide that is uh, assigned to my daughter, I become the aide. So I suddenly adopt a new role where I am, you know, a teacher's aide, and I don't get paid for it. My time doesn't get reimbursed, yet I'm expected to do the same thing as somebody else who was trained more in some capacity. And so I think it just is a very difficult situation because, you know, we don't get the help that we need because of her special needs. And then I have to work. I, I, I mean, and then, but then the school is making the assumption that all parents will allocate this time to teach their kids, but yet they have to make a living. So how can they do both roles at the same time? It's just not possible. And I think you touched on something very critical, Simon, which is honestly speaking, both you and I are parents with privilege that even though we both work, we have the ability to help our child. What about all the parents who financially or language wise or, you know, for any other reason or they have disabilities themselves cannot help their children. And it seems to me that this is a pit in which we have fallen. We have fallen, like we're not falling. We've, we're in the right. pit and we just need to crawl out of it. Right. Right. Joy, can I get one more question in before you have to have to? Absolutely, okay. yes. I wanted to ask you, you know, I know one of the most difficult aspects um, from the parent's side is, is, is getting the diagnosis and getting the individualized education program uh, established, the IEP, which then sort of helps you have the benchmarks and establishes those relationships with the school. What's it been like to get that going in the midst of the pandemic? I mean, that's a part of that. I haven't heard anybody really talk about that in the middle of COVID-19. And I know that's one of, the, one of the more challenging aspects of receiving these kind of services is getting the diagnosis, right? Yes, and these are conversations that need to happen in person. And so there were a lot of things that, that the teachers needed to get creative in a way to waive the requirement of meeting in person. Um, so starting from that, right, our school systems are so antiquated. I remember attending one conference with Bill Gates. He was talking about education and I remember two slides that he put up and he was like, this is a classroom in 1920. This is a classroom today. And he was like, the only difference is that they don't have blackboards anymore. They have whiteboards. And in a way it's kind of ridiculous, right? How antiquated our education system is. And then you throw a pandemic in the mix and you're like, go online and thrive. <laughs> well, it doesn't happen that way. To get, a, to get the school district to agree to a specially crafted plan, you in, in Texas, first you have to meet in person. And so that was the first hurdle. 
how do you get your child to receive special services? And then what are the special services when, as Simon is saying, your child is not meeting, you know, their needs are not met. In my case, my kid saw his teacher for 15 minutes a week on Zoom again. You know, it's like, uh, let's let's just pretend this didn't happen or let's let's agree that there will be no progress for now. And are we okay with that, right? Diaz, thank you so much for spending time with us today on COVID calls. Simon and Scott, thank you so much. I mean, I'm, you know, time zones and everything, they are what they are, but thank you so much. And I'll be happy to join you at a different time. Very good. Thanks again. Just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls and you can get your question in on YouTube live, or you can put it up on Twitter, just tag at you as a disaster. Um, Simon, just to come back a, a little bit more context for California, you know, Joy was telling us a little bit of the situation in Texas, um, and she described one where the ramp up in special services has been quite abrupt and quite recent. Um, I don't know. Can you tell us a little bit about the situation in, in California? Is, is there a strong activist community for the disabled um you know, students in in the state. Uh, what's the culture there in terms of providing services? I mean, I, I think California, above all, compared to other states, are probably much more active and much more re, uh, responsive to uh, students with disabilities. I mean, uh, so I would. I think, uh, and, and so uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, di- I didn't have any problems uh, before the pandemic. Um, but I think what is very difficult now is just that, um, you know, as what Joy was saying, it's just um, the way the situation is now with, and I just wanted to uh, make a comment maybe about the IEP. Um, well, IEP the name of IP means individualized education program. So that means there's an individualized approach for every child. Now, when my child goes online, basically there is one program for all the students in the class. And so, um, however that may be, maybe it's sort of, uh, they've sort of agreed and decided that this is the, you know, one way of teaching all the kids in the class, but all the kids in class have different abilities and different levels. Mm -hmm. So you're invariably going to have children that are going to suffer because they don't meet the average or, or typical way of learning. And so there's no way you're going to meet the requirements of the IEP because it's not individualized. And then in California, and I'm sure also the federal government, there's there's a concept called FAPE, F-A-P-E. So free access 
to public education. Mm-hmm. So I think that becomes an issue because at least with my daughter, if you don't have sign language or somebody to uh, have an aid or interpreter, then she doesn't have access to the ed- educational materials. So based on that, she also, um, the, the FAPE concept is not being held uh, true. So I feel that there's no way that the IP and the FAPE is being met on any account. Um, I'd rather for them to just say, look, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're suspending uh, anything about FAPE or IEP. I'd rather mm-hmm. have them admit it as opposed to finding ways to get around it and in some ways, you know, maybe pretend is is really a harsher word, but but just trying to say, look, we're trying to um, we're trying to meet the needs this way. Um, they're not meeting the needs, but I would just wish there was an acknowledgement on on their end to say, look, we just can't do it. That frustration that you're sharing right now. Um... Have you been able to share that with parents who are in a similar situation? Do you have support community there that helps in this regard? Well, um, we have definitely uh, these uh, groups online that that I, I write in and I try to share my concerns and and parents from other groups in other states kind of write in and they mimic the same kind of concerns from their end. So, uh, so I feel comforted in the sense that other people understand what I'm going through, um, and and it's not a unique situation. Um, myself, I, I had requested another IEP to be set up uh, in light of what is happening. I'm kind of skeptical about what actually will get accomplished with that IEP. My fear would be that they would come back and say, well, this is the situation, this is all we can do, and then what are you gonna say? So I, I think, there's a lot of uh, ambiguity, confusion from both ends, I mean, to be honest. Um, I think the district doesn't really know what to do. The parents don't know what to do. Everybody's coming from a good place. I think the intentions are good. So I have no problems with that. But the solution that has been proposed is not a viable one. Let me ask you um, just maybe a bit more from your perspective as a, as a physician, as a researcher, is it possible to say anything about what the impact is for students who are receiving special education? So they're making progress towards whatever those goals may be. And then to have it suspended for a period of time, three months, six months, a year, should we be expecting, what kinds of impacts should we be expecting? I mean, I, I definitely feel there's going to be some level of regression. I think with special needs children, um, even just having the summer months, you know, some some uh, clinicians feel that having the summer months without instruction can lead to some aggression on special needs part. So, so my child had gone through summer school up until this point, um, but now it's not just the summer, but you know, about half a year where this has been going on. And I feel that um, you hear uh, children uh, regressing in their actual learned ability. Um, and, and then also there may be behavioral issues. So um, children acting out, getting impulsive, uh, for those who are easily bored, who may have attention deficit disorder, uh, there may be more conduct problems at home. So I think they're definitely a toll that's taken on the child 
and then inevitably on the family as well. Is it possible to sustain the relationship between the parents and the child and whoever's providing the educator, or the, the aid who's providing assistance? Are you able to maintain that relationship across time? Usually the student-teacher relationship year to year in school, of course, lasts for a year and then that's, that's the end of it and you move on. But my sense is there must be a different kind of relationship that's established a, a stronger bond of trust. Am I right? Well, if you're talking about that personal aid or, or the one-to-one -one aid, I mean, we, um, but before Olivia went to, uh, to, to um, uh, sort of kindergarten and, uh, you know, she had an aid for actually uh, two and a half years. And then um, uh, last year she, she had a new aid and, and we are always hoping that this person would stay longer you know, for at least several years. Um, what had happened this year, we found out, and we actually found out this Monday when we first logged on for the first class, was that the district took the aid from us mm -hmm. and then used the aid sort of as a general helper for any of the students online. So we lost the one-on-one -on -one aid and that aid was sort of funneled to, um, as a resource for other students. And, and I spoke to some people uh, uh, in those support groups and they said this also happened with their children. Um, so, um, so that's really disappointing. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, that definitely would be a violation of the IEP in terms of uh, that's what we're allocated. Um, but, you know, we tried different things or, or, or I think, my thoughts are, well, could the aid come to the home? Um, could my child go to school based on some sort of a waiver that allows her to, to go in small students? And these are the things that I don't know. I mean, I intend to speak about them at the next IEP for my child, but you know, there's just so many issues about somebody coming into your home and then helping you with your sure, daughter. Sure. And then what happens if, if that person gets infected, your family gets infected. So that's where I feel that there's a lot of risk on both ends. And, and again, I mean, we're, we're trying to do our due diligence, but nobody knows really what to do. This is the first time this has happened and we're just kind of not sure, but you know, that's the, that's the situation now. These uh, more creative ideas, you were just discussing it with the proviso, as you said, um, things are changing in real time with the pandemic, but to have uh, perhaps a meeting at home or perhaps to have students in a, in a pod, right. to have a, a, some other meeting place off the campus. Have you heard serious discussion about these things as, as possibilities and options? Because it seems like this is, if there was ever a time for creativity in this space, this is the time. Well, I, I know a lot of um, students that are not special needs, like their parents uh, are, are sort of getting together and, and they're doing that whole pod uh, motif where I think like four or five parents come together and then they rotate uh, where the children are going to be. So maybe five children will go to one house on Monday and then they'll go to a, another parent's house on Tuesday. And then the, and the parents will rotate, but then they're going to hire somebody. And I'm not sure if it's like a tutor or a facilitator, but
but they will hire somebody to be on site at that person's house so that they make sure the children are paying attention and learning and sort of logging on and there are no uh, glitches with, with the technology. So I, I've heard of that. And then I also know that Gavin Newsom, I was looking at this today that I think maybe uh, mid-August, he was uh, telling our districts that special needs children, uh, we should consider having them go back to school in small groups. Because he came to the realization that for some students, remote learning is not going to work on any level. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to get some information about that in the ensuing weeks. But as of this time, I think some districts are working on that, but there's no clear guidelines about how to facilitate actually coming in into the physical space of the school. So just to get down to brass tacks, I mean, what are the schools up against here. They're worried about, um, obviously, the, everybody wants children's and, children and teachers to be safe and healthy. Sure. But the broader implications are that litigation follows or that there's other kinds of, of um, issues here, bad, bad press, things that make a school district look bad or the governor look bad. I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on right. the goalposts here, you know, that may be restraining um, some creativity. Do you have a, a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's always a concern about, you know, preservation on, on, on uh, you know, and, and, you know, litigation, safety. I mean, I think those are ongoing concerns. And, and so, um, and, and if I was in the position of the, of the teacher in the district, I can't blame them either. Um, but I just feel that, you know, right now the proposal that is on the table is just not mm -hmm. a good one on any level. And and I remember just uh, the other day, uh, I and this is again my cynical side, which can rear its ugly head. But but after Monday, the first day of class, uh, I I because we felt that this modality would not suit our daughter we decided that we just are not going to spend the time logging in on Tuesday because she's not getting anything out of it and it's taking up the parents' time. But the school called and, and said, well, you know, why aren't you logging in? Why, uh, why aren't you doing this? And it's almost like they're checking to make sure that we are doing this um, mm. so that they themselves could check off saying that, hey, the parents are agreeing and if they consent to it, then this, you know, this this manner uh, of teaching is working. I don't know if that's really their intention, but I think there's certainly motivation on the school's part to sort of let this, the government and, and the city know that this is a workable option. I, right? I mean, they're invested in that. I'm sure they would be, um, but it's not. And, and I think... As parents of special needs children, I mean, we're, you know, we're we're operator on the other other end, right? So, and we feel that we're just we just can't support this kind of teaching because it's by implicitly kind of going along with it, we're kind of saying this works for our child, mm -hmm. but yeah. it really doesn't work. And so, it may work for some children, but it's not going to work for all children, and definitely for special needs children. I can say that it's typically not going to work. 
you have a unique um, window into this also given your, you know, your, your job and your training as a scientist. Um, and I wonder if you can say a little bit, a little bit more about that part of this. Have you been treating from home? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I have been um, seeing clients uh, uh, in my private practice, either online via Zoom, or they would come, but then my office would be uh, in a sanitized condition. So um, I abide by pretty much the social distancing, the mass. Um, and, and so I do everything I can, but it's very interesting because I see children with special needs because I evaluate them and I evaluate them for the IEPs, the very ones that I go to. And I, I always am curious. I say, so what do you think of this distance learning? And, and one child was saying, well, I have attention deficit disorder. I can't pay attention for six hours at a time. And there's no structure that is uh, provided. There's no place in the home that I can sit to study. So, because our house is very small. And I said, so with the teaching, you know, are you paying attention most of the time? He said, well, it's actually easy to just to tune out. And I said, well, what do you do? He says, well, sometimes I uh, mute myself. Sometimes I get myself off the video. Right? Sometimes I just open other browsers and watch YouTube or other websites. And I just lower the volume or, and so nobody would actually know. And, but he said he got caught one time. And I said, well, how did you get caught? He said, I was wearing glasses and people saw the tint, the reflection on my glasses that was showing some movie. And that's what I And I was like, so he said, there's just so many ways to get around this and there's no checks on you. And, and I just think that, you know, and, and, you know, he's a pretty high functioning um, student, uh, but I just felt like, you know, the other issues about just many of the services, like my daughter has occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, physical therapy, but, but there are just these services. It's, I think it's very difficult to accomplish when you're not in the same physical space as someone. It's just, I don't know if it could be accomplished. And, and so um, there's just a litany of things I feel that it just doesn't work with this, with this modality. say, um, if you don't mind, a little bit about, you know, what it was like in the springtime, like an average school day. Yeah. What was that like in your house? Well, I, um, I have four children, uh, ranging from age six, four, two, and a newborn. And so right around like June, we had our, our baby and and it was a mad, it was a madhouse to begin with uh, in our home, but but so part of the time we're rushing to get, the the good thing about California, and I don't know about other states, is that um, 
the other two children who are four and two, they go to daycare. So daycare is sort of exempt from, uh, at least from California, they're not part of a school. So yeah. home care and daycare, uh, you can actually still have established and open. They're not part of the shutdown. So we were able to send our kids to, so I would wake up and I would make lunch, prepare, and then rush both of them out to school. And then I would have to come back and then my daughter, Olivia, and the newborn would be home. And then I would look at the, the curriculum that was sent to me. And basically it would be like from eight o'clock to three o'clock. And, and, and it would have, you know, there would be no break necessarily. And I would say to the teacher, I cannot follow this curriculum at the same time work. I just cannot do it. And so the teacher said, well, why don't you just pick and choose some of the activities that you like that you think would suit best for your daughter. And then we'll check in once every week or every other week, and then we'll see how it goes. And that's exactly what I did. Mm -hmm. So during the day, uh, so in March, I actually took off time. I took six weeks off from work because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I did have some time to work with Olivia. But then I went back to uh, went back to work. And during that period, she was really not getting any education. Um, I came home, I picked up the kids. Uh, we fed them, bathed them. By the time all that happened, it was like 8.30 at night. And so I had 8.30 to 9 o'clock to do some work with Olivia. Then I would have to do some grammar or arithmetic, or I tried to do something with my other kids. And then by 10 o'clock, we all finished and go to bed. So that was the extent of it. I mean, it was just, this is not teaching. It's cramming in whatever you can do with the little time you have and hope for the best. And um, so, but that's really my day. It's just, um, you know, constant running around. Well, first of all, I mean, absolute hats off to you for what you just described. And I'm sure what you described resonates with many people, parents who dealt, uh, you know, in the spring with the various different educational permutations and teachers as well on their side, but with these added challenges that you have described, the stress level must have been, I mean, as you described it, you're literally learning it as you're doing it and then reaching points of frustration. Did you have some way, you said you had the parents group maybe to interact with online. Do you have some way to, to cope with that? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's just to, so I think I'm for myself and, you know, I'm just very good at sort of looking at the broader picture. Um, so when I get frustrated, I just kind of realize everybody's kind of in the same boat. They might not have a special needs child, but they're kind of going through the same trials and tribulations, albeit to a different degree. So I feel that for myself, that kind of calms me down and I get some perspective and uh, and my wife really does help me. I mean, we we have a lot of humor in our relationship, so that, that does make it easier. Um, but I, I think it's just like any parent or uh, any parent or just, um, you know, I always look forward to when all the kids are asleep. So by the time 10 or 10.30, I have that time to myself and I just savor that quiet time, even if it goes until midnight and I'm like, 
you know, even if I get less sleep, I'm just happy to have that quiet time where it's mine. And, um, and that's how it works for me. Um, so, you yeah. know, but everybody has been coping, you know. Have you been teaching through this time as well? Uh, I, I actually, the, the teaching through the graduate schools have been suspended because uh, they don't okay. allow them the grad students to go into the clinics to see the patients. Of course. And so I, I think they started just doing it, but not all the clinics. Um, and then where I am at, at Stanford, I mean, we, we do see a good number of people on Zoom. And, and so for people who are immunocompromised, uh, we, we do it. And, and so, um, you know, so it's been, you know, so definitely uh, uh, in terms of the teaching, that has has been a change. I mean, um, you know, and, and the students don't see clients, so that also has a bearing on their learning uh, opportunities as well. So, do you think that in the in, in this moment, I've heard some discussion, and this is about healthcare more generally, right? That that now all Americans all at once except for the maybe the super wealthy all americans for all practical purposes all at once have have seen the challenges of our healthcare and education system all all together all at the same time mm-hmm. and that so there is a, a version of that if you buy that that says the status quo is now no longer acceptable across the board and i think that would include special education mm-hmm. do you have any hope that in out of this moment grows the basis of activism and change so that we're not uh, be discovering these problems once again. I mean, what's happened as you've described it seems to me have been thoroughly predictable if people had ever actually kind of thought through Mm -hmm. um, maybe that we wouldn't be out of school for six months, but to be out of school for a lengthy period of time because of some other kind of disaster is not unthinkable, particularly in California. Right, right. You know, I, I mean, I, I think I really do feel that this is just something that if, if people were to be asked this question at the beginning of the year, nobody would have realized or anticipated that this something like this could happen. And and, and I just think that, um, you know, I mean, I, I never imagined that this could happen. Um, I joke with my wife that, you know, we're, we're very good planned people. And even with four kids, you have to be somewhat mindful of yeah, anticipating the pitfalls. But we never even imagined that something like this could happen. Like we just couldn't anticipate it. And so, um, and, and so, in terms of, I, I think, where do we go from here in terms of like education? Right. I, I mean, I think that it really sort of looks reevaluates this issue about education, the public school, and 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 and. Is this something that I think people will look with a more, you know, fine eye on, on, you know, is, is this the, is this the type of learning that um, we want that is most suitable? Um, and so I don't, I don't know what will come of it, whether people will have an, you know, sort of go more likely to other types of schools. Um, will there be a revamping of the curriculum? I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure about that piece, but um, all I can tell you is, as a parent is that this experience has really left me 
feeling that, you know, the remote learning piece is just um, not a sufficient way really to learn, especially with young and disabled children. I think if children are older, let's say in their preteens or adolescents, I mean, they have some level of responsibility. They know how to log on. They know what's, what is expected of them. And, and I think that is very different than asking a four-year-old to sort of do this. And I mean, they're not doing this. The parents are doing it for them. And, and essentially, I, I joked my, with my wife, I went to kindergarten. I went through grade school. I don't need to do it again. But I am doing it again with my children. And but why am I doing it again? And I think a lot of parents are asking that same question, half jokingly, but half frustratingly about, well, how are we gonna deal with this? Dr. Simon Tan, thank you for being so candid and sharing what you've been going through and your insights at this time. And I wanna remind everybody that you're uh, listening to COVID calls and this has been part of our special series of education discussions today on special education. I wanna thank Joy Diaz as well for joining us in the first part of the call today. Remind everybody you can listen to COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. We'll be talking about the challenges of reopening higher education, universities, colleges, junior colleges. So that will be a very interesting conversation for that. I hope you'll join me for that. And um, Simon, wishing the best for your family. And I, I hope you can get back to um, a better school situation and a more sustainable situation as soon as possible. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Stay healthy, everyone. See you tomorrow, five o'clock.